Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm thrilled that uh, it's still sunny outside, but I'll still count all of you as intrepid, intrepid history buffs being here this evening when so many people are scurrying, scurrying away in the wake of tomorrow's expected snow. Um, tonight's program, The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series, and I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his tremendous generosity, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this stage. I'd also like to thank and recognize uh, one of our trustees in the audience this evening, Suzanne Peck, and thank her for all she does on behalf of this institution. Tonight, you'll hear from my colleague, uh, Alex Castle, at the close of the program. And uh, I'd like to thank Alex for his fine work at the New York Historical Society. Of course, acknowledge all the Chairman's Council members in the House this evening. We're also grateful for the support of White and Case, which is the sponsor of tonight's program. And we're thrilled to welcome the firm's guests tonight. Thank you very much to White and Case guests. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. You should have received a note card on your way into the auditorium. If you have not, um, please look for staff who will be going up and down the aisles, uh, handing out note cards, and later on in the program, they will be collecting them with your questions. There will also be a formal book signing this evening uh, following the program, and copies of Akil Reed Amar's books will be available for sale in our New York History store. We are thrilled to welcome back to the New York Historical Society Akil Reed Amar, who is also a New York Historical Trustee. Uh, professor Amar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University before joining Yale Law School. He clerked on the First Circuit for then-Judge Stephen Breyer. He's a recipient of the Devane Medal, Yale's highest award for teaching excellence. He's also the author of several books, including his latest, The Constitution Today. As always, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming Akil Reed Amar to our stage. Thank you all for braving the elements and the forecasts uh, uh, for joining me tonight. Um, as, uh, as many of you, I'm sure, know, Voltaire famously observed that the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Now, here at the New York Historical Society, with which I have had this long and special relationship with this organization and with you all. I, I begin with a confession. We're all friends here, so I hope you'll keep the secret. Here at the, the New York Historical Society, um, I'm only a part-time New Yorker, and I'm only an amateur historian. But there we go. Um, so neither holy nor Roman nor an empire quite. Um, and the kind of history I do is distinctive. It's legal history, and here's why legal history makes certain non-legal historians nervous. If you 
approach many a professional historian and you ask her or him, what would James Madison say about Obamacare? Um, how would Thomas Jefferson um, react to the current fiscal situation? What would George Washington think of Donald Trump? Um, the historian will say, I can tell you what they did say um, in their time and place, but it really um, is beyond uh, the discipline of history, beyond my expertise, really, to play this um, a game that, that audiences always want to play about what would they say about something today. Different period, the world is so different, um, and so many historians resist that invitation. But not legal historians, or at least not some of us, um, and here's why. It's, it's not that we're doing history badly, it's that we're playing a slightly different game um, with different rules. In the same way that they say squash, it's just different from tennis. We engage materials, historical materials, um, texts, statutes, constitutional provisions, a declaration of independence, a constitution um, that were generated long ago. And we actually have to apply the meaning of from those, especially those legal texts, to some issue today. We have to decide, in effect, yes, um, what did this document prepared by James Madison, what does it mean for uh, Obamacare? Um, how should the presidency, um, which was designed by and for George Washington, um, be um, uh, understood today in the age of Trump? Um, judgment, and, and, and we have to answer the question. We can't uh, dodge it because you either think Obamacare is or isn't constitutional. Judgment in the case at hand must be given to the plaintiff or defendant, sometimes on the basis of a text generated long ago. So, so we play this um, uh, anachronistic game, we legal historians, that, that many um, non-legal historians are very hesitant to play. Which brings me to um, the new book, which is very much about what the Constitution means for today's cases and controversies, hence the title of the Constitution today. This collects, um, this is from a certain purist point of view, the least historical of the constitutional history books that I've um, tried to, to write over, uh, over the years, precisely because um, I pretty audaciously tried to tell you what something that happened a long time ago might mean for some current burning issue that, that you care about um, and are trying to, to understand, you, my fellow citizens, um, in some uh, deep way. The, the book um, collects various op-eds that I've written uh, over the last 20 years for places like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Daily News, just to pick three um, uh, New York venues. Um, there, it turns out there, there are other places in the world, but, 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 but they're not New York. Uh, um, and so it collects um, uh, uh, these op-eds, about 80 in all, there were about 85 Federalist essays. That's a sort of a model, a New York, um, a collection of, of, of New York op-eds way back when about the Constitution. It collects and reflects upon uh, these um, op-eds that I've, and organizes 
these op-eds that I've written on the topics of, of our collective, um, uh, of, of our lifetime and, 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 and um, uh, of, of, uh, that are of interest to, to all of us who care about um, this country and its constitution. So what I'm going to do um, uh, for the remainder uh, of our session together is just tell you a little bit about um, some of the ideas in the book and at every point since this, it, it tell you something about what happened in the past and how that might be relevant today, to tell you, do a certain kind of history, a legal history. And since this, this, this is the New York Historical Society, often to give you the, a New York angle on, on the story, a distinctively New York angle. Um, and maybe um, at least one or two of these New York angles might seem a little gimmicky, but I, I can assure you that I couldn't give this um, lecture with the, the, the Nebraska uh, angle on everything or the Wyoming angle on everything because New York has loomed much larger in our constitutional story, as I hope you'll see. So I begin, uh, the first four chapters are about the four important, uh, most distinctive um, uh, political institutions of the central government. The presidency, actually the vice presidency, which I bring um, into um, uh, uh, a view for, for special analysis, the Congress and the judiciary. Uh, I begin with the presidency. This book came out uh, in the fall of 2016 because I thought my fellow citizens were going to be very much focused on the presidency. I thought this presidential election was going to be um, particularly important and, and distinctive. I didn't quite predict that it would be two New Yorkers, but there is, of course, that New York um, element to the story. And the first chapter, um, here's the title of it, and then I'll try to, you know, just tell you a little bit about what's behind the title and how it helps make sense of our modern era. The presidency dash a return to dynasty, question mark. Now, by return, um, I'm making a point about history. So I want to tell you just a little bit about um, the dynastic um, uh, elements of the early debate about the American presidency. Here was uh, the first um, op-ed in, in the book. Um, here's um, um, how it, it actually um, uh, uh, begins. Uh, and this was published in the year 2000, in, in January 2000, just as the presidential race of 2000 was, was warming up. Um, and, of course, um, uh, uh, well, here's how it begins. Our story of father-son succession and the U.S. presidency begins with George the Patriarch and the rising George W. That is, with King George III and George Washington. Um, the title was U.S. Successions Began with George III and, and W. So, um, a history point. George Washington becomes father of his country precisely because he is not. He becomes president of his country for, for several reasons, because he's a military figure um, who, who had uh, the world's most, you know, one of the most powerful, the most powerful army on the continent, the only army on the continent at his disposal and disbanded it and, and walked away from power. He's the first president, and so you can trust him. 
um, not to become a dictator, a tyrant. And he's the first president because he comes from Virginia, which really is the middle kingdom um, uh, um, the, uh, with um, uh, 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 states to its south and north. It's, it's the dominant political power in that era, but also you see it's George Washington uniquely because um, you can trust him. He becomes the father of his country because he's not the father of his own children. He has no sons. He has no heirs to the throne. And so you can trust him not to create a throne because he's got no one to give it to. And he says that about as clearly as it's possible to say in an early version of his first inaugural address. Delivered, of course, in the city of New York. Now, he ends up pulling, uh, cutting out that, that language. You can trust me because I don't have any sons to, to I'm not going to create a throne because I've got no sons to give it to, because James Madison persuades him that that's a little too maudlin and, 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 and personal. Um, but um, that's, an his, that's a history point. Now let me make a constitutional point. Why does the Constitution say the president has to be 35 years old? What's up with that? What's behind that? And you might say, ah, that's because they wanted presidents to be mature. Maybe, but you know, it's possible to be elderly, old, over 35, and not mature. <laughs> J just saying. Um, and so, there's actually something more interesting behind 35 than mere maturity. You have to ask yourself this question. Who would have had the name recognition to get himself, and back then we're talking about hymns, elected president at the age of 30 or 33? And they're not thinking about a specific person because George Washington is going to be president for um, as long as he wants to. So they're not thinking of any existing 32-year-old. They're thinking about a type. And here's the type that they're thinking about. They're thinking about a favorite son of a president or a leading politician, someone who has a famous first name and a famous last name, and he's 33 years old, and people are going to vote for him. Possibly he will have the name recognition because they like his daddy. Now, um, uh, I can prove that to you. The Constitution doesn't say that, but when you study history, um, people actually explain the purpose of the 35-year-old clause by saying that, Tench Cox and, and other pamphlets during the ratification period. But here's just a very simple fact that will prove this point to you. Who is, when they're writing the words 35, the prime minister of England? William Pitt, the younger. And he might be good and he might be bad, but he's getting it because he has the same first and last name as his daddy, um, uh, William Pitt the Elder. Uh, and William Pitt the Younger was 21 when he entered Parliament and 25 when he became Prime Minister. Okay? 24, excuse me, when he became 21 and 24. So that's what they're writing is against the backdrop of that, that they say presence or 35. And here's the idea. Once you're 35, you will have a track record of your own, of achievements and failures, and you're, you're to be judged, basically, by your own achievements and failures and not just your name. So they're already telling us, here's actually how we expect and we hope voters to vote in, in the presidency, not on the basis of what someone promises they will do, but on the basis of actually a lifetime, typically, of public service about what they actually have done. And in fact, 
if they really are distinguished public servants, they're likely to have made some mistakes. And um, because that's what it means to actually be experienced, is to make mistakes. But maybe they won't make the same ones. They'll just make different ones, maybe better ones, maybe smaller ones, because they actually are seasoned. So this is interesting. If, if my fellow citizens had known that, would they have focused a little bit more on past, you know, past record rather than promise of, of what someone is going to offer in the future. So you're free to vote however you want. You're not bound by any of this. But maybe, actually, knowing that that's what 35 was about, that it was about um, a presidency based on past service to the republic, that's interesting. Now, what do I mean? So that's, what, that's why I'm talking about dynasty. The framers were resolutely opposed to dynasty. They prohibit titles of nobility, both um, against states and the federal government. There's a, a, a prohibition on state titles of nobility, even in the Articles of Confederation, which imposed almost no limits on what states um, could generally do. So this was a deep theme for them. And um, if, you, if you don't understand history, you might miss it because it's, it's in the Constitution, but slightly beneath the surface of that 35-year-old clause. You have, to, you have to dig a little bit. You might otherwise think it's, it's mere maturity. No, it's actually there's more of a, of a concern about um, uh, an unrepublican um, uh, uh, social structure. They are trying to repudiate um, monarchy and aristocracy in all its vestiges. Just to, to, tell, to tell you, um, say it a, a different way, Okay, not only does George Washington have no sons, Thomas Jefferson has no sons, at least legitimate ones that we know about that bear his family name, born on the right side of the marital bed that, it could, that could succeed him. And James Madison has no sons. Um, and James Monroe has no sons. And John Adams has a son. And his name is Q, as in W. Um, and, and the framers actually focused on that. People actually went around saying, this is, this is in Boston newspapers, Adams has a son you know, who wants to be president, vote for Jefferson, because like Washington, he has no sons. That's on the surface of discourse. Um, and uh, presidents who have sons, interestingly, don't tend to walk away from power. The first president with a son who actually voluntarily walked away, as opposed to being dying or being defeated, is Rutherford B. Hayes. You know, you have to go, you know, 17 coin flips. Um, before. So presents uh, with no children or presents with daughters walk away. Presents with sons do not. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. That, that's history. But, and if you don't know it, you, you may not have as much of a sense of your Well, Now, what's a New York angle on all of that? Um, well, the, our current president, who is involving his um, children um, um, in um, uh, his administration in um, pretty interesting ways, um, perhaps novel ways. I do not want to be partisan about this. We could talk about a, a famous senator from this state. I grew up um, uh, lionizing Bobby Kennedy. Um, but I write an essay in this book, The Dark Side of Camelot, in retrospect. Um, the very metaphor of Camelot is deeply un-American. It conjures up images of, of noble birth um, and, and princes and, um, and just what the framers of the Constitution were, were aiming to repudiate. And you can say, well, why? You know, okay, so there were the Kennedys. But could talk about the Bushes, and I do, and not just that he had a father who was president, 
but a grandfather who was Senator Prescott Bush and a brother who was a big, another big state senator who did run for president. Um, and, um, and I say, well, at least there's no, you know, he doesn't have a son named George III, but do keep your eye um, on George P. Bush, who was Jeb's son and who you will hear more about, I predict. Um, but again, not to be far, so we, so we had the Kennedys, we had the Bushes, Al Gore, you see, there, there was dynasty on both sides in 2000. His father, same first name, same last name, Al Gore Sr., senator from Tennessee. We could take this state, and it's not just, you see, that Andrew uh, Cuomo is the son of Mario Cuomo, who ran, you know, or thought about, was, was, was talked about as a possible presidential aspirant. Um, as you know, um, uh, Governor Cuomo's um, uh, uh, wife early on was herself a Kennedy, a daughter of Robert Kennedy. Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not just a movie star. He was married to the Kennedys, um, to, um, to Maria Shriver, whose dad ran for the vice presidency, whose uncle John was president, whose other uncle Robert ran for the presidency, whose other uncle Ted ran for the presidency. Jerry Brown, um, his dad, Edmund G. Brown Jr. Well, his dad is Edmund G. Brown Sr., governor of, of um, uh, California, Pat Brown. There was less first name um, confusion there because one was Pat and one was Jerry. But you are living in a world where dynasty is making a comeback. And if you're not aware of it, because you didn't even know how um, anxiety-inducing that, that was to the framers, well, then you're missing. And, and historians might w wonder about my taking something from 200 years ago and applying it to the present moment. We could talk about Hillary Clinton. She, you know, is, that, is it the same kind of dynasty when it's intragenerational, when these folks weren't born into that but actually found each other? Um, one final point, and then I'm going to segue to the vice presidency. Um, uh, so if you're not going to hand off power dynastically, which is how the rest of the world basically did it before the American Revolution, you're going to have to figure out some way um, uh, uh, people, uh, um, uh, leaders of, of projecting their power in the future, finding some protege, some wingman, um, some um, uh, junior partner, um, maybe not dynastically um, related to you. Um, and uh, I talk about how actually Hamilton is feared precisely because, yes, he's not Washington's son, although there was a rumor that he was Washington's illegitimate son, you know, um, in fact. Um, and it, it, people are paranoid, um, but people are paranoid today. Um, and uh, there's no birth certificate for Alexander Hamilton. Um, uh, and George Washington had been in the West Indies three years before Hamilton's supposed birth. And you can see this conspiracy theory. Now, why would they have these conspiracy theories? Because they're living in a world where power often sort of is handed off dynastically. But, but Hamilton's a New Yorker, you see, and he's, he never becomes president, um, but he's sort of Washington's sort of um, uh, uh, junior partner. Well, that's not altogether different from Hillary Clinton as Bill Clinton's junior partner, another um, New Yorker. Um, um, also, she was Barack Obama's um, a, a political partner. Um, now, the relationship between these, um, between, let's say, Bill and Hillary, is more complex um, uh, than um, the relationship between um, uh, Washington and 
and uh, Hamilton or between Jefferson and Madison, you know, picking sort of your, your protege, your successor. We have to add um, sexual complexity to the mix. We have to add actually that they have a child. Um, and if Chelsea, you see, were um, involved in political life, then we'd see dynasty downward. Um, interesting questions about how dynasty interacts with gender, uh, both in world history, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, um, or in your world, Indira Gandhi, whose, whose father um, uh, uh, was um, uh, 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 Prime Minister Nehru, or um, in South Korea today, um, or in Indonesia, or in Malaysia, sort of women, um, Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan. So, so, so you're living in a world where dynasty is all around you in interesting ways. Um, and they mentioned one other New Yorker, because I analogize Hillary in the book to two interesting New Yorkers that were basically protégés of presidents who were trying to maybe pass down power to the next generation. So one was Alexander Hamilton. The other that I picked, I thought was the most similar, was Martin Van Buren, um, another New Yorker, um, sort of ja Jackson's sort of hand-picked successor, Secretary of, of State. And Van Buren, by the way, is the last time that the Democrats managed to win twice and actually hand off power um, uh, for a third term. Hasn't happened since. The Republicans have done a little bit better job of that um, uh, with um, Ulysses Grant and, and Rutherford B. Hayes, although Hayes was complicated. Their New York story, he, he supposedly beat Samuel J. Tilden um, uh, and Reagan and George H.W. Bush, of course. Um, but first chapter, President's Dynasty, um, uh, picking your protege, how that works. Um, in history. Second chapter is about, and there, there are all sorts of New York um, angles on that interesting myth. Second chapter is about that distinct office, the office of the vice presidency. Um, the chapter borrows from uh, its, its title from um, um, uh, a reflection of uh, John Adams. The chapter is called Nothing But Maybe Everything, um, which is how John Adams describes his position. Um, um, he also um, in the, um, and that was the, the more optimistic description, maybe everything. Um, uh, uh, his, um, um, his more um, pessimistic description is he, he said, it's, quote, the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. Um, so here's um, my modern day. Well, let me take you back because there's once again a New York story. The original Constitution allowed voters to vote, cast two votes for the presidency. You voted for two different people for the presidency, and whoever came in second for the presidency was automatically the vice president. That system generates, in 1796, present um, the election of 1796, um, uh, inauguration of 1797, President John Adams and Vice President Thomas Jefferson. They ran against each other, but they came in first and second. Now, when you think about it, because the framers weren't contemplating the rise of national political parties that might be deeply polarized. And of course, America would never again have polarized political parties, but um, think about how deeply destabilizing it is to have your sitting president and your sitting vice president basically 
representing two very different factions, worldviews, um, um, really being in, you know, in, intense um, rivals. That's, that's an assassination incentive. Um, and what happens in 1800? You have a rematch, and the sitting president is running against a sitting vice president. And what's the difference between, in two words, between Adams winning in 1796 and Jefferson winning in 1800? Because the South twice votes for the Southerner and the North twice votes for the Northerner. And what's the difference in two words between Jefferson losing in 1796 and winning in 1800? The two words are New York. Because he makes an alliance with Aaron Burr from this state who beats Alexander Hamilton in local elections in this city. And as New York City goes, New York State went. And as New York State went, the nation went. So it's a New York story. And in the aftermath of that, we, the people of the United States, amend our Constitution to provide for a separate election of the president and the vice president. Um, so that now you don't have necessarily rivals um, in these two offices. You have teammates um, who, who team up. OK, I'll be president. You be vice president. We'll run as a team. Um, and that's the modern presidency. Okay, and then I tell, I tell that story of the original Constitution and the 12th Amendment and the role of New York in all of that, which I'm highlighting for this audience in particular. Now, what does that mean today? That means our current system is actually problematic. And you're not seeing it at this nanosecond, but um, every single president, okay, so, because um, um, the, the vulnerability now is the third rung. There's a president, there's the vice president, but what happens if both, if they both um, become, um, uh, they die or, or are disabled? We have a statute that says, who's next in line? The Speaker of the House. I argue this book as an unconstitutional statute and a very dangerous statute. Here's why. Because um, it, it is an assassination incentive. It's regime change waiting to happen. Every single president since Lyndon Johnson has faced a Speaker of the House of the opposite party for at least some time in office, except for Jimmy Carter, okay? So um, Richard Nixon you know, faced Carl Albert, um, and, um, and, uh, and Gerald Ford had, again, a, a Democrat um, Speaker of the House, and, and Ronald Reagan had Tip O'Neill, um, and... Um, Bill Clinton had Newt Gingrich, and George W. Bush had Nancy Pelosi, and, um, uh, um, and Obama had um, uh, Boehner and, and Ryan. So think about it. You vote for um, Obama and Biden, and if, God forbid, something happens to them, you end up with Boehner. You vote for Clinton um, and Gore, and if something happens to them, you end up with Newt Gingrich. You, not to be partisan about it, you vote for Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, and if, God forbid, something happened to them, you end up with Tip O'Neill. That is regime change, assassination, it's in deep tension with the whole idea of the 12th Amendment, you see, which is you should have teammates um, in your line of succession. Now, why is that a New York story? Well, it's a New York story in part 
because this whole thing was precipitated by the 12th Amendment, New York's role in the 1800 election. It's a New York story because in case you, know, you forgot, 9-11 happened here. And there is a real possibility, you see, um, it's more likely than ever before because of international terrorism that, God forbid, something could actually happen simultaneously to the president and the vice president. You don't see that issue at this precise nanosecond because actually there's unified um, political control of um, the House of Representatives and the presidency and the vice presidency. But don't expect that that may, will, uh, is guaranteed to last. It's possible that the, the Democrats take the House of Representatives in, in two years or that the, um, uh, the Democrats uh, take the presidency in four and the Republicans retain control of the House and we will have something that's deeply destabilizing and it would be deeply sort of disheartening for democracy when you vote for Democrats and because, let's say, of a terrorist incident, you end up with Republicans or in the presidency or vice versa. So that's nothing, but maybe it's a deep, deep problem. And we're not seeing it in part because um, um, you have to, because um, you have to be in the story. You have to anticipate what might happen rather than what's daily in the headlines in order to see our vulnerability here. But it's a genuine vulnerability in our democracy. Okay. Well, here's the third chapter. It's about Congress. Um, and Congress, um, it's called you know, How to Fix a Broken Branch. Congress is deeply dysfunctional. I claim one of its deep dysfunctions is the Senate filibuster. I claim that the Senate filibuster is actually not required by the Constitution. The framers didn't have a filibuster in their version of the Constitution. There was no important filibuster of any issue um, uh, um, that, that prevented the issue from coming to a vote on, on, on any topic before the Civil War. And therefore, today or any day, the Congress of the United States, or excuse me, the Senate of the United States could get rid of the entrenched filibuster and restore simple majority rule in the Senate by a simple majority vote. That's called the nuclear option. I argued for it for many years, and I tell the story in this book about how eventually Harry Reid and the Democrats came to do a nuclear option in a modified form in November of 2013. And now having, uh, without precedent established, um, the nuclear option could be extended on any day by either party going forward. What Harry Reid and the Democrats did was get rid of the uh, entrenched filibuster for certain, um, for all appointments except for the Supreme Court. But with the Gorsuch nomination, if, if Mitch McConnell wants to go nuclear, all he needs to do is get 50 senators plus uh, Mike Pence, and he can do it on any day. Uh, um, and if he wants to do it for ordinary legislation, like the repeal of Obamacare, he can do that as well. And he can do it because actually the Constitution provides for simple majority rule in the Senate. And, and by simple rule change any day, either party, um, we could go back to it. Now, what's the New York angle on all of that? Well, here are two New York angles on all that. The Constitution was ratified in the different states, in, in st state conventions. Article 7 says you need nine states to ratify the Constitution. But what vote do you need in order to ratify in Pennsylvania, in Massachusetts, in New York? Well, the Constitution doesn't say. But everyone understands you need a simple majority vote. That's it. And the vote in the Poughkeepsie Convention here in New York is 30 to 27. Actually, one person changes their mind, the Constitution fails in New York. 
um, because you could say, no, professor, there would be 29, 28, it still would have passed. But George Clinton, who's the presiding officer of the Poughkeepsie Convention, the governor of New York, was actually opposed to it. And if it had been 29, 28, he would have cast a tie-making, not a tie-breaking, but a tie-making vote, and the Constitution fails. It's the barest of majorities, and it was a very slim majority in, Penn, in, in New York, excuse me, in um, Virginia, in Massachusetts, and in New Hampshire, but no one thinks you need a supermajority. And where does the first Congress meet? Right here. And on the first day, the Senate is going to have to figure out the rules by which it operates. Well, what voting rule do you decide what your rules are, or the House? And by what voting rule do you decide? What voting rule do you decide? What voting rule? It could be an infinite regress, but there is no infinite regress because everyone understands on day one here in this city that each house can operate by simple majority rule. Um, that's how the Constitution was adopted. That's how the first Senate operated. That's how the first house operated. That's how the Senate operated for the entire antebellum period. Okay? And it has profound implications for... Um, uh, the Senate, which has become dysfunctional, actually. Only in your, your lifetime, only in the last 20 years, has it really been the case that you needed basically 60 votes to do anything. Um, chapter four is about, I mentioned Gorsuch, is about the judiciary. There are some essays, uh, but not about Gorsuch, uh, although I may have a piece coming out in the New York Times in the next six days about um, that, so stay tuned. But um, uh, there's a discussion of Merrick Garland's nomination. Um, I'm not going to go into that in great detail. I do want to remind you um, that he um, uh, be, learned how to be a great judge by clerking in this city for the great Henry Friendly. I want to remind you that all the justices actually um, went to school in New York or in an adjoining state, all of them either New York or an adjoining state, which includes Connecticut, Massachusetts, the Harvards and Yales of the world, that the current nominee um, is um, uh, a Columbia uh, grad, um, that unlike all the other justices on the Supreme Court, so the, the Supreme Court is very coastal. Um, he's distinct in that although his education is very elite and coastal, um, he also is from the heartland, and in that way, um, may be a bridging figure. The most recent election really demonstrated the real polarization between coastal elites um, and the, the heartland. The, the biggest new idea in this chapter about the judiciary is my proposal that we could, without a constitutional amendment, move to a regime of 18-year terms for the United States Supreme Court. And there are many, um, and I show you how that can be done. Basically, you're a justice for life, you get paid for life, but basically you're on the front bench only deciding cases for the first 18 years, and after that you do administrative stuff, you pinch in when the court is short-staffed, but you're actually not sort of regularly um, uh, um, hearing cases. Now, there are many advantages to having um, uh, uh, this um, uh, model of 18 years. 18 divides nicely by nine to um, um, which means every president gets two picks, and you know which two they're going to be. Um, and here's one advantage of that. You know during your presidential election who's basically which two justices are going to be stepping um, down from the first bench, and therefore what issues are, where they were the swing justices, what's in play. We can have a democratic conversation in presidential elections about the court without the really icky speculation about her health, you know, or his personal life. Um, um, so, because um, it's, it's, it's actually awkward now um, when people ask me to speculate about so-and-so's health and, and so-and-so's personal life and are they going to step down or not? And I heard this and what have you heard? Um, and, um, and also, just 
uh, by the way, the current model creates bad incentives for each party to go younger and younger, pick you know, 30 year olds, 25 year olds. Um, and so there would be advantages to having a, a term limited model, which is how most um, state Supreme Courts operate. The, the big point of, the, of this reform, that I, the new idea is we can do it without a constitutional amendment. There are actually a couple of ways of doing it without a constitutional amendment. This is not a partisan proposal. Um, um, my um, colleague um, in uh, putting forth some of these reforms is none other than a co-founder of the Federalist Society, former uh, clerk to uh, Antonin Scalia and Robert Bork, um, the great Steve Calabresi. Okay, um, let me just tell you a little bit about some of the other chapters. I wanted to tell you most of all about the, 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 the branches of our government, the, the presidency, the vice presidency, um, the Congress, um, the judiciary. Um, there's a chapter on criminal procedure um, uh, and, uh, and a whole section sort of on the culture wars. And criminal procedure is, is one sort of flashpoint in the culture wars. On some of this, I'm quite conservative, I, a critic of the so-called exclusionary rule, which suppresses evidence, um, even if it's highly probative, a, a bloody knife with the with the victim's blood on it and the uh, murderer's fingerprints, bloody fingerprints on it, if it was acquired um, in violation of the Fourth Amendment. And I actually say the framers of the Constitution would be appalled by that. No framework of the Constitution ever believed that. No court in, for the first hundred years in America ever did that. Um, and, and we should think about getting rid of it for all sorts of reasons, because it would actually be better for innocent people um, and better for victims. Um, there's not that much of a New York angle on that except this. Um, that um, chapter was very largely inspired by the Law and Order series, um, uh, which focuses so much on exclusionary rule issues, if you're a fan of the series as um, I am, in part because this is just a, a recognition that there is a tension between ordinary morality that often says, you know, why should the murderer go free because um, uh, the constable blundered? Aren't trials supposed to be about sorting the innocent from the guilty? There is a tension between that ordinary morality and what, what judges do day in and day out, but judges who actually don't study history and don't know that what they're doing is actually very different from what every single founder thought and did, which is just at least an interesting point. Um, another chapter in this is about other culture war issues. And, uh, and in criminal procedure, I say some conservative things and some of these culture war issues. Sometimes I'm on the left, sometimes I'm on the, the right. I defend um, in this um, book both same-sex marriage on the left um, and Citizens United on the right. Um, and uh, maybe in the Q&A, if you're interested, I'll tell you my you know, some of the, the reasons behind that. Um, um, and maybe not a profound New York angle, although the same-sex marriage issue really burst into um, prominence on the Supreme Court in a case involving Edith Windsor from this state and this city, um, uh, um, whose um, same-sex marriage was initially, although recognized by the, the great state of New York, was not recognized by the federal government because of the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, uh, leading uh, the Supreme Court to invalidate that in what, with the benefit of hindsight, was the, the first of a two-step invalidation of um, bans on same-sex marriage um, generally. The Obergefell case actually says not only is the Federal Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional, but actually various state laws that don't respect 
same-sex marriage are themselves unconstitutional. Um, the, the New York model actually has to be applied um, uh, to the other states as, as well as um, for federal purposes. Um, that chapter, by the way, is called Citizens Disunited, Race, Guns, Gays, and More. Um, 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 another, um, I'm just going to skip a little bit because we're coming close to um, um, getting some of these um, cards. I think in about 10 minutes, we're going to, or uh, six minutes, we're going to um, move to the Q&A part of it. The book ends with three presidential, what I call presidential dramas for each of the last three presidencies. I um, uh, tee up um, a, a constitutional issue that, um, that really defined in part that presidency and that historians will, will remember. Um, for um, Bill Clinton, it's his impeachment. There's obviously a New York angle given that the Clintons live in, in Chappaqua. Um, my basic point in a nutshell, because I, I don't know why, but I just am getting a lot more questions about presidential impeachment now than I did four <laughs> months ago. Um, my big claim is that the, the, here was the problem with the Clinton impeachment. It was a partisan impeachment, and that's not good. If you are going to undo a Democrat president, you should do so only if people who voted for it that person, that person's party turned against him, and the Democrats didn't. So, so Richard Nixon was brought down rightly because members of his own party decided that he must go. Reasonable sober members, the Howard Bakers, the Lowell Weikers, um, the, um, uh, the Fred Thompsons, the, um, uh, the um, Barry Goldwaters, Mr. Republican, goes to the White House and says to, Reagan, uh, to, excuse me, to Nixon at the very end that um, uh, you have fewer than 10 votes in the Senate, Mr. President, and, and I'm not with, and I am not with you. Um, so the problem with the Clinton impeachment, as I see it, is um, uh, if you're going to undo a national election, you should undo it only if the people who actually put that person in the presidency have decided that he, one day she, must go. And that's what I believed when Democrats were in the presidency, in the, for the, held the presidency and vice presidency. That's what I believe when Republicans hold the presidency. And vice presidency. Um, um, so, so do not expect this to happen. Um, uh, um, uh, um, and we can talk about the 25th Amendment, which takes us back to the vice presidency, if you're interested. Um, I've got some thoughts on that, too. Um, for uh, George W. Bush, the most interesting thing, I think, was the way in which he actually came to be president, the the, um, and in the, the first modern inversion of the um, electoral, between electoral college vote and uh, the um, popular vote. And I have a series of essays in which I make just a couple of, of, of points. Um, one, that the reasons that we have the electoral college are not what you were told. Some people have heard this before in, in this audience. I'm seeing lots of old friends here, um, long-term friends, not old friends. Uh, uh, um, Although we are getting, you know, uh, long, growing long in the tooth, some of us. Um, so, um, uh, the reason you have the electoral college is not about. Raise your hand if this is what you were taught. Ba balance between big state and small state. That's why we have the electoral college. Or because you don't, they don't trust the people. Um, so we have these wise elders to make the decision for us. They don't really believe in democracy. Yeah. Well. Name me one elector in all of American history, because um, uh, they, they've always been nobodies from nowhere. 
Okay, uh, from day one, they've never exercised independent judgment. And we've only had three small state presidents in all of American history. Um, Zachary Taylor, Franklin Pierce, Bill Clinton. That's not why we have the Electoral College. We don't have the Electoral College because it's a balance between big and small states. Um, um, we don't have the Electoral College because they didn't trust ordinary voters. We have the Electoral College, one word, slavery. Because in a direct election system, the South loses every time because its slaves don't vote. And if that wasn't clear, and when the Constitution was proposed, it surely is clear after 1800 because everyone with eyeballs, in the election that New York is the swing, because it's south against the north, and New York is the swing. It's where north meets south. New York was a slave state at the time. It's the Ohio of, of that period. And everyone with eyeballs understands that without the extra electoral votes that Thomas Jefferson is getting because of Southern slavery, they're at a discount, three-fifths, 13 extra electoral votes because the South has slavery. Without slavery, the states that voted for Thomas Jefferson would have added up to 13 less. And without those 13, John Adams wins that election too. And everyone in America understands, ah, the electoral college, it's about slavery. And you've forgotten it perhaps, but they did. And they amend the Constitution after that to separate the election of president and vice president. But what they don't do is fix the, electoral, the, the slavery skew. Um, and it is a, very much a New York story as um, perhaps um, moving to direct popular election might be. I actually, in this book, float an idea that's sin since become, um, it was an early version of an idea that later became the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact in which various states can choose, the New York legislature has chosen, that um, if certain conditions um, exist in the future, we, the New York legislature, will give our electoral votes to the person who wins the national popular vote rather than um, the state popular vote. Um, and if enough other states join on board, that's direct national election of the presidency without a constitutional amendment, just like you get term limits for the judiciary, for the Supreme Court, without a constitutional amendment. And I tell that story. And the New York legislature is one of the, the, the 10 or so state legislatures, maybe 10 plus DC, I think, that have actually adopted this already. So stay tuned, you might hear more about that. Um, the final chapter, Barack Obama's defining constitutional issue, um, Obamacare, of course, I know, you know people don't talk about Obamacare anymore. Um, um, it's just not remotely in the news in the Constitution today. CBO just um, scored it within the last um, uh, several hours, just in case you, you, haven't, you haven't seen that. Um, and um, I'm about to move to questions. Um, New York angle, of course, uh, Barack Obama is a great graduate of, the, uh, of Columbia, um, as um, is Neil Gorsuch as was Alexander Hamilton. This state, this city, you know, uh, continues to be um, just in the center of things. So I actually couldn't have, tr I actually thought about, well, could I have actually pulled this off from like a Nebraska-based perspective on? No, I don't think I could. New York actually has been absolutely central to the constitutional story from Hamilton to today. Um, so um, I've got some of your questions. Let me actually just take a look here. Ah, well, here's the first one. Would you please comment on the constitutional issues involved in the fight over Obama's Affordable Care Act? I'm not making this up. Raise your hand if you actually think. I want people to know this is, this is not a plant. This was the first. Um, um, okay, okay, see, so, so they're fessing up. Um, so um, I argue in this book that um, these are essays that were first uh, published before the case reached the Supreme Court that Obamacare was easily and obviously constitutional. It might be good policy, it might be bad policy, but it's easily and obviously constitutional 
because first and foremost, it's a tax. It's a big, stinky, redistributive tax, and that's what we have the federal government to do. Um, and, um, and that's actually what John Roberts, um, who did his clerkship, um, learned to be a lawyer here in this city, clerking for the very same Henry Friendly that, that Merrick Garland clerked for. That's what actually Roberts said for five justices. And he might be right, he might be wrong, I think he's right, but here's what he wasn't as partisan. He was, a, is, was and is a Republican, appointed by a Republican president. He doesn't like Obamacare. Almost every Republican agrees with him about that. And yet, he did not vote in a partisan way. So three cheers for John Roberts. And this book tells the story of my attempt to try to persuade him um, that that was the right thing to do. And, and one of the things I told him is, you know, in the short run, and I wrote this, it was very cheeky to do. Yeah, in the short run, you're the umpire. But in the long run, you're not. In the long run, you know who's the umpire? My students, because they will judge you. History will judge you. And actually, Obamacare is easy and obvious. And maybe you're not seeing it, but I promise you, you know, my students are. And after Bush, you know, fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice. My students think that the, they're, they're very cynical. They say, you know, just how many presidential elections are five Republican justices allowed to steal, Professor? Undo. Um, and what am I going to tell them if you pull another Bush versus Gore? What am I going to tell them? Um, in the short run, yes, you're the umpire. In the long run, history will judge us all. Our students will judge us all. Why is it easy and obvious? Because it raises a ton of revenue. The very longest article of the Constitution is Article I. It's the first and longest article. The longest section of it is Article I, Section 8. And and so this is the longest section of the longest article, and it begins saying Congress shall have power to raise and collect excises, taxes, imposts, excises, um, um, uh, and, um, uh, and other revenue up. The, con we, the Constitution is designed to create a federal government that's going to be able to tax you up and down the sideways. That's actually, that actually is what history shows. It was a revolution in favor of government after a revolution. The revolutionary slogan wasn't no taxation, period, no taxation, exclamation point. No taxation without representation. But now that we have a representative Congress, it does get to tax us. And if you don't like it, vote the bums out. If, and, and this is a big stinky tax. And if that weren't clear enough, we amended the Constitution to provide for a big stinky redistributed federal income tax. New York played a very big role in all of that because 34% of all income taxes collected before the Supreme Court struck them down came from this one single state because that's where the money is. It was a, the original income taxes were soak the rich income taxes on the 1%. They were designed to be redistributed. They were advocated by people who called themselves progressives um, and who advocated progressive, that is, redistributed income tax. I'm not saying you have to have it. I'm just saying you can. It's fully constitutional. And if y'all don't like it, vote the bums out. But don't say it's unconstitutional because it really isn't quite. Um, it's, it's a big, stinky tax. And there are other arguments for it as well, but that was the one that persuaded John Roberts. Um, and, um, and I'm not sure it's perfect policy. Um, um, I defend the right in this book to have a gun in your home for self-protection. I don't have a gun in mine. I don't want one. Um, so this is not a book that's about my personal preferences, um, but about my understanding of kind of constitutional 
principles when the Republicans were in favor of nuclear option in the Senate. I supported them. When the Democrats were, I supported them. If Mitch McConnell wants to do it again, I'll help him because the rules for the Constitution really have to you know, be the same for, for both parties. So uh, uh, Obamacare, easily and obviously constitutional. I think that's what history will say 50 years from now. They'll, they'll wonder that how four justices could have ever um, you know, uh, held preposterously that it's not constitutionally permissible. Again, and it might not be a good idea. Uh, personally, I would have liked to see a lot more tort reform in it because everyone in my family are doctors. They've all been sued. Um, uh, we don't love being sued. Um, um, uh, we think that the lawsuits were very unfair. So, so again, I'm not giving you my personal views in the book, but my constitutional views. Okay. How much did the Federalist Papers influence that close vote in New York? Who, um, great question. Um, and um, it's generally acknowledged that the Federalist Papers didn't have that much of um, an impact outside the state of New York. Um, in fact, um, after the first eight or so, most of the Federalists weren't reprinted out of New York. But when you win 30 to 27, everything matters. Um, and, 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 and the Federalist Papers were a, a debating handbook um, up and down the continent. They were especially, I think, influential also in Virginia, which was this close and at the end. So in those two key critical states, the two big states that you actually have to have at the end that are close to make the thing work, I do think the Federalist Papers are influential, even if they weren't decisive. They distill and summarize arguments that other people are making up and down the continent. They're sort of one-stop shopping. Um, and so if you want to really understand what the arguments are for the document, they, they stand up even today um, as just um, utterly brilliant. One nice thing about them is you don't have to read them start to finish. You can read them in little snatches. That was the model of this book. Some of my other books are really long and tedious. This one. Um, you can read it on the potty, okay? Because it's a series of op-eds, um, and, and none of them is going to take you longer than three or four minutes. And that was interesting about the Federalist Papers, too. Three a week, but they, they're, they're, each one of these is, is, is short. And, and if you haven't read the Federalist Papers, oh, you're in for a treat. Highly recommended. Um, um, and um, I would say influential in New York and, um, and Virginia, because everything was. Only one more question? Oh, two. Okay, great. Um, which institution is less democratic, the Electoral College or the Senate? Um, my parents, when I was three years old, asked me whom I loved more. Um, I, I, and apparently, I told them that I loved mommy the most and daddy the best. So um, uh, a, a diplomat even then. Um, I don't love the Electoral College. It's not that skewed. Um, it, yes, it favored Republicans in 2016, um, but it could have favored Al Gore very easily. It was easy to imagine that he might have won the, uh, the Electoral College vote while losing the popular vote. Um, um, John Kerry, um, if 50,000 votes had switched in Ohio, um, he would have been president of the United States in the Electoral College while losing the popular vote by 3 million. So it's not skewed. Democrats win more big states, and because of winner-take-all, that helps them. Republicans win more states where no one lives, the boxes in the middle of, of America, and that gives them some extra votes because they get a two-senator bonus per state. Those kind of cancel out in general. Um, the Senate's not great either, but in fact, um, 
you know, Amer um, uh, in, um, let's say, 2012, um, uh, more people voted Democrat um, for Congress, and yet the Republicans won the House of Representatives, yet they held the Senate. So, so this, the Senate isn't perfect, but it's not that skewed as between Republicans and Democrats. The Electoral College isn't that skewed. Um, um, I tend to favor one person, one vote, and I have some ideas in, in the book, but these, these are not um, hugely, um, uh, uh, um, there's not a huge partisan skew right now for either the Senate or the Electoral College. So I, I don't love either of them, but um, okay. Um, uh, final one. Oh, well, uh, well, two, just quickly. What would the framers think about direct democracy and universal suffrage? Um, they had more democracy than, you can't judge them by today, women didn't vote, uh, property qualifications, religious qualifications, slavery, et cetera, et cetera. You have to judge 1787 by 1786, and by 1686 and 1586. Here's the point, it's in New York's point. More people got to vote on the Constitution than had ever been allowed to vote on anything before in human history, and by a very wide margin. Up and down a continent, people got to vote, and there was free speech, and people weren't repressed, and even people who opposed the Constitution were listened to and not thrown off the island, and they become Presidents of the United States, James Monroe, Vice Presidents, George Clinton, Elbridge Gerry, George Clinton from, from this state. Um, and, and that great conversation, actually, the um, people actually listened to each other. We got a Bill of Rights out of it. Um, um, people were deeply divided, and yet they came together. So um, they believe, we the people of the United States, and here's the New York story onto that. So, so I think, and, and uh, since the, the framing, Framing five different amendments have added the word right to vote. So the Constitution doesn't end with the framing. Um, but um, in New York, in this year in which the Constitution was voted for, all free adult male citizens got to vote in the Constitution, which weren't the ordinary rules in New York. No race tests, no religious tests, no property qualifications. Um, people who weren't allowed to vote in ordinary elections were allowed to vote in the Constitution. The framers gave us more democracy than ever before. And We've only gotten better over time. A Bill of Rights, abolition of slavery, um, black citizenship, black suffrage, woman suffrage, which is a New York story. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, 18-year-olds getting the vote. So um, I'm going to construe this as not just what the framers would think, but what our Constitution thinks. Democracy is not a dirty word. There's not a difference between democracies and republics. They're the same thing, etymologically and conceptually. And I think, actually, I'm getting the hook. So with that, I thank you all for braving the elements. Before, uh, before everyone leaves, I just wanted to let you know that uh, Professor Amar will be joining us again on March 25th. It's a Saturday morning. He's going to be joined by Christina Rodriguez and uh, Den Den Judge Denny Chin, thank you. He's going to be joining us. It's on page 15 of your brochure, so if you don't have one, please pick one up on the way out. I also just wanted to uh, also acknowledge another trustee who's with us in the audience tonight, uh, Cy Sternberg. So we always thank our trustees for their great work and wonderful leadership here. And uh, also, Professor Amar will also be coming back in May with Marsha Coyle. So we, uh, again, pick up a copy of the brochure. He will be signing books on the Central Park West side. You can pick the book copies up on the 77th Street side. And we all wish you a warm uh, blizzard tomorrow. Take care. Everyone stay safe. Take care. Thank you.